Hi, and welcome to Science Distilled. A podcast based on the lecture series of the same name. It's where we break down concepts from cutting-edge science and research and learn how they apply to the world around us. I'm Michelle Matus. And I'm Paul Bogart. Since antiquity, humans have been looking up and wondering, is there life out there or are, are we, we alone? alone? Are we alone? Are is there life out is there? there life out there? Are we alone? Are we alone? Are we alone? Let's take a field trip. Head outside, take a deep breath. Now look up. The vastness of the universe is before you. The latest Kepler mission data suggests that there are over 40 billion habitable world zones in the universe. That's 40 billion potential opportunities to find life. We sent our intrepid student reporter, Lauren Bain, into the field to ask people in Reno, does life exist outside of Earth? Here's what some folks had to say. The universe is nearly, it's very big, right? I don't know if it's infinite, but it's very big. So I just think that the chances of other life existing is, it's got to, there's got to be a chance, you know? Um, I believe that life exists outside of traditional concepts of life on this earth because of uh, indigenous spirituality practices I've been involved with. Um, I've done a lot of soul searching and types of spiritual journeys that have given me personal evidence that there's a lot more happening than what we understand. The universe is huge. There's no way that there's not anything else. There's just us. That was Shana Lieberman, Matthew Zaitkowski, and Sydney Kane. In today's episode, we're going to address astrobiology and the deep questions of the universe. The topic was discussed at the Science Distilled Lecture Series, produced by the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute, both in Reno, Nevada. Doctors Brittany Kruger and Carlos Mariscal spoke at the lecture and after with KUNR about life, what it is, how scientists find it, And if we do find life on other planets, will we even be able to call it life exactly? Before we get into addressing the questions that have plagued humans since the dawn of time, let's get on the same page about what astrobiology is. It's an interdisciplinary field with the goal to understand actual and potential life in the universe through natural sciences like biology and geology, and even the humanities like philosophy. Astrobiologists are interested in the potential for extraterrestrial life on things like comets and asteroids, But more often than not, they're looking at planetary bodies. In case you need a refresher from grade school science, planetary bodies like Earth rotate around stars, which provide an energy source and also a habitable zone within which a planet can support liquid water, given sufficient atmospheric pressure. Water is important because it's required for life to function as we know it. So out of the 40 billion habitable zones, there has to be life out there somewhere, right? That's a question Dr. Brittany Kruger is working on. We spoke with her after the Science Distilled event via Skype from DRI in Las Vegas. Uh, So my name is Dr. Brittany Kruger. I am a biogeochemist here at the Desert Research Institute in Las Vegas, uh, which means I study the way biology and geology and chemistry interact um, in different environments, specifically within the field of astrobiology. Dr. Kruger studies microorganisms in extreme environments, specifically extreme subterranean environments. She's trying to figure out if microbes are alive and how they sustain life. So far, the only confirmed instance of life scientists have been able to identify is right here on our little blue marble. We've got it all. Water, a nice cushy atmosphere, and energy from the sun that allows us to grow plants to consume and thrive. Plants are the primary producers for the larger living organisms on the Earth's surface. Kruger elaborated on how plants do this in her presentation. 
They use sunlight energy to fix carbon dioxide from the atmosphere into actual plant biomass, thereby fixing that carbon, fixing that energy um, into a usable form for other animals. So think about that for a minute. All life you can see on the planetary surface is dependent on energy from the sun to exist, right? If that sun goes away, life as we know it kind of collapses. Um, and that doesn't mean that life goes away, life persists, it just is going to exist differently than we know. Okay, did you catch that? Life as we know it collapses. Not having plants to eat is a game ender for us surface dwellers, but that isn't the case for all life on Earth. Right. Life can persist away from the sun. How do we know this? Because researchers like Kruger have actually found thriving microorganisms in some of the deepest, darkest places on this planet. And they're using those findings to inform research into what other life might look like. Well, I mean, anywhere that you look, you'll find microbes really is what we're finding. Um, there are a couple environments on Earth that potentially might not have any life at all. But by and large, wherever you look for microbes, you'll find them. We tend to kind of seek out those more extreme environments because that's where the microbes are going to have adaptations that really set them apart from the microbes that we can easily access on the surface of the Earth. That's where they're going to be able to survive in high temperatures, in high pressures, in extreme radiations, in extremes of pH. So that's where we really find those unique adaptations that could teach us something about how life could function in extreme space environments. These adaptations are diverse and wildly fascinating. Researchers are finding microorganisms that have found a way to harness energy and survive in extreme environments. Our student reporter Lauren Bain headed back to the streets to chat with folks in Reno about what life might look like elsewhere in the universe. I'm currently a fan of Star Trek, so I kind of get an idea of how um, other worlds might be perceived. Um, and given the similar similarities that I've seen in the show, um, it, it kind of, I, I'd imagine it to be somewhat similar in the fact that they kind of have uh, maybe like a similar moral value. But um, I mean, obviously, there might be other places that have completely different values compared to ours. It would be kind of cool to think there's another intelligent life out there, like humans. But I don't think there really is going to be one exactly like us. Something maybe more barbaric and not as intelligent. In a different planet, life might move so slowly that uh, any living beings might look like statues, just frozen. And their lifespan might be trillions of years, whereas ours might be a hundred years. And on the other hand, if we went to another planet where living beings traveled so fast that we couldn't even see them. And their life might last one second in our time, but it might be a hundred years in their time. The Trekkie you just heard from was Christian Gates, followed by Shelby Weaver and Terry Brooks. Based on Kruger's work, they found several different adaptations and went over examples in her talk. This is a species called Gallianella, this twisty, crazy-looking thing. That's an iron reducer, so this metabolizes iron rather than oxygen. Um, that would be like the equivalent of us having to touch a car, a rusty car, every time we want it to breathe. Kruger shared images of these microbes under magnification so that they could be seen with the naked eye. Here's another one. These skinny blue rods are an organism called the Sulfurutus audax viator. This is an organism found in a mine in South Africa, very deep, um, and it's thought to mainly exist on energy from radiation coming out of the rock in that mine. When we talk about life, what life is really is the transfer of electrons. So there has to be some sort of energy transfer for life to occur. 
Researching these adaptations helps scientists think and learn about what life might look like elsewhere. So you may be thinking, how and where do they even find these organisms? Well, we're glad you asked. Studying the deep biosphere is inherently difficult. There are three main ways they access the depths. First, they find deeply sourced springs that act as pipelines, essentially pumping microbes from the deep biosphere to scientists on Earth's surface. The second approach is to send instruments down thousands of feet by digging a deep hole, sending an instrument package down and collecting samples. Finally, the third is perhaps maybe the hardest to actually just go there. Dr. Kruger is part of the NASA Braille project. And we know NASA loves an acronym. This one stands for Biologic and Resource Analog Investigations in Low Light Environments. It's a simulation of a future mission using lava tubes in the Lava Beds National Monument in Northern California. These lava tubes, if you were wondering, are long tunnels that were carved from half a million years of volcanic eruptions and lava flow in the region. That sounds... tubular? That's awful. <laughs> the lava tubes are a terrestrial analog for caves that are thought to exist on Mars. The project uses a remote sensing rover equipped with light sensing instrumentation to detect mineral biosignatures and identify life in caves. The Braille project utilizes foot scientists like Kruger to ground truth the data that the rover is collecting. We are kind of conducting our own independent investigation characterizing the microbes in that cave. And so what we learn about who is there, what they're doing, what chemicals they might be leaving behind, that's all data that the NASA instrumentation team then incorporates into their instrument data interpretation. So they get values back from um, scans that the rover performs on the cave walls. Those values hopefully tell them something about the amount of organic material there or the nature of the organic material there or the different chemical compounds detected. Um, but what they don't understand is how the different factors that the foot scientist team is studying affects those outcomes, right? So we don't know if the age of the microbes gives a different signal um, with regard to the rover instrument. We don't know if the different kinds of microbes give a different signal with regard to the instrument. So there's all these variables that we need to understand to correctly interpret the rover data, and that's kind of where we come in. We're, we're the like um, human sentient control for, for this, you know, autonomous instrument. What's important to understand is that at some point, this badass rover is heading to outer space by itself, and it's going to collect images to send back to Earth. Scientists here are going to have to interpret those images, and they'll be looking for signs of life. The work the foot scientists are doing now essentially creates a key to understand the rover's images. NASA Braille is just one of the many projects exploring the potential for life elsewhere, whether it's life as we know it or something else. So, so far, everything we've talked about um, has assumed that extraterrestrial life will function on other planets the way that we know it to function here. And we know that's probably not true, right? So we are carbon-based life. It's very likely that there's life in other places that is not carbon-based or that is so different that we're just not able to identify it as life. So how can we detect something when we don't recognize it, when we don't recognize that it's giving us signals that it is life? Remember at the beginning of the episode when we talked about how astrobiology combines the hard sciences along with the humanities, including philosophy? Well, that's where we're heading next. Some think that if we've only found carbon-based life, why even study astrobiology? They say life probably won't look the same as here on Earth, so why even bother? Enter Dr. Carlos Mariscal, an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Nevada, Reno. I mean, I think science and philosophy are continuous in that... Um, 
the the more abstract scientific questions shade off into the more concrete philosophical questions. And I I also think that uh, we have a lot of really really good science going on everywhere uh, uh, in the world right now, and every new scientific discovery or invention, every new um, thing that somebody produces raises a couple of questions that might be philosophical in nature. Namely, how do we know it? How does it fit into um, our established canon? And what should we do about it? And I look around and find these questions where scientists are at a crossroads or they disagree um, or they're just fuzzy and, and abstract enough questions that scientists don't feel like they can form an experiment to, to figure them out or to establish anything. And I set to doing research, reading the, the relevant work, talking to the right people, and figuring out how various complex ideas fit together. So philosophy is helping astrobiologists piece together seemingly disparate fields of research and working to give form to the more abstract and fuzzy questions. Because unless you're really, really pessimistic, something we'd call life probably exists elsewhere in the universe. Mariscal broke it down during his Science Distilled talk. There is a, a limit beyond which if you think these uh, planets and these habitable zones had chances to form life um, and you think life is rare, there's an, a, a number you can put on it about how rare life would have to be for Earth to be the only instance of life in the universe or, or something we might want to call life in the universe. Um, and it's essentially one in a septillion. So one followed by 24 zeros. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hugely improbable um, number to give you a handle of what that means. It's roughly the equivalent of winning the Powerball, getting struck by lightning, winning the Powerball again, and then winning your March Madness bracket in the office. So <laughs> um, when you talk to people that are pessimists, that think that life is fairly rare in the universe, and you ask them to, to put, put numbers, put their, their um, numbers where their mouth is, they always give a number that's much, much bigger than this, um, yielding the conclusion that they must also think that there's life and possibly lots of life elsewhere in the universe. So life probably exists somewhere else. If it does, how will we identify it? Can we really rely on terrestrial biology to help us understand what life might look like? Or even how to identify life if it isn't even what we expect it to look like? For these questions, these deep questions, Mary Skell says there is a glass half empty and a glass half full approach. You could think of life on Earth as weird and unique and not likely to have happened elsewhere, half empty. Or you could look at life on Earth as representative for potential life elsewhere, half full. Let's look at the half empty version first. There are arguments for thinking that life on Earth might be weird. The first was uh, given by Stephen Jay Gould, and it's essentially the argument that life on Earth could have been otherwise. Uh, the dinosaurs didn't have to go extinct. Humans didn't have to come out of Africa. All sorts of things could have been otherwise. Um, and because this is the case, well, there's no reason to think that things had to be this way or had to be any particular way that things are. I think a lot of people like this argument. Other people have pointed out that people have been really confident about biology before. They've been made big, huge claims about how life had to be, and a lot of them have been wrong. Right? So when Europeans 
um, sail to Australia, you would have asked anybody and said, hey, are all swans white? And they would have been like, yes, all swans are white. And then, whoa, we go to Australia and we discover black swans. Oh no, not all swans are white. Oh dear. So because this happens, maybe we shouldn't be confident that anything here on Earth would tell us um, about life elsewhere in the universe. And this is the last one I'll, I'll give on this side uh, of the uh, debate, is that we have a single example of life here on Earth. And because we have a single example, it would be uh, hubris. It would be um, overly confident to think that um, any of that would apply elsewhere. We should at least wait until we find a second example before we draw big conclusions. So that's the pessimist. If you find yourself with a half-empty glass, Mary Scowl thinks he can help you change your mind. He's an optimist and argues that life on Earth can be representative or universal. The laws, theories, and principles of biology are not limited. They're not explicitly or implicitly limited. When Charles Darwin writes The Origin of the Species, he doesn't say, yeah, species evolved by natural selection until Tuesday, November 22nd, uh, 2024. He doesn't say they evolve in England. He doesn't say creatures below five foot two uh, evolve like this. So they're not limited. And because they're not limited, maybe we should see uh, what these principles tell us about life that we know nothing about yet. Um, I pointed out, and other people have pointed out, that physics and chemistry um, are universal and have uh, predictable effects on biology, right? So this is important here. Chemistry and physics are universal and have predictable effects on biology. Just to back up, a universal science is a science that is expected to hold everywhere in the universe. Energy utilization and transfer are examples of universal chemistry and physics. These processes are essential for biological life to exist. It's what we discussed earlier with microbes. They've been able to adapt to receive energy in unique environments from different sources like radiation or metal. Those adaptations are the result of life persisting under environmental constraints or rules of chemistry and physics. Mariscal goes on to list a few other constraints extraterrestrial life might have to contend with. Radiation will be everywhere. Um, creatures need to be able to faithfully pass along um, their traits. Otherwise, if, you, uh, if the lineage evolves eyes, it would just lose them right away, and that would be terrible. Um, there's going to be competition uh, everywhere, as long as there's life anywhere, you think? And then the last one, the last argument in favor of thinking that um, biology might be universal is that um, a lot of the same forms appear again and again in evolutionary history, something called convergence. From different starting points, um, you see the same forms appear again and again and again. Mariscal thinks that some of the adaptations that we see happen again and again in life on Earth could help us understand some of the features of life that might exist elsewhere in the universe. While he says it isn't an all-or-nothing game, some aspects of life can be universal, while others just aren't. And this is exactly why the philosophy of astrobiology is important. Philosophical approaches to science can act as a translator between various fields of research or ideas that seem to conflict with each other. Ultimately, the goal of astrobiology is to help answer some complex and existential questions. And those questions aren't going to be addressed by just one field of research. There are some deep fundamental questions that we still haven't gotten close to answering as, as humans. Um, 
these basic questions that like keep kids up at night that, that we sort of try to forget as adults, right? Like, why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? Um, this field gets at one of the big overarching guiding questions that make you tremble of, are we alone? And, you know, the, the universe is huge. The galaxy has hundreds of billions of stars. Each of those um, has planets, about 16% of which um, are Earth-sized or in, in the right um, ballpark for being habitable. And there's hundreds of billions of, uh, of galaxies in the universe. And yet, in the hundreds of years that we've been looking, I guess since Galileo, we haven't found anything except for how strange life here on Earth is. And we might not be alone, but, but we're weird. And, and we can maybe not place ourselves in the cosmic significance, but in the terrestrial world, we, we have a better grounding of where we fit in now. Doctors Kruger and Mariscal are helping us to understand some of the ways life on Earth itself is unique and fascinating. For Kruger, she's still finding terrestrial life that is every bit science fiction. You know, I mean, I'm still a kind of young enough researcher in this field that I still see things that are amazing all the time to me, not necessarily, you know, in work that I've produced, but in the work of my colleagues and in the field in general. I think the, the ability of organisms to, for example, survive completely on energy from radiation is completely amazing. There have been basically in any extreme environment we look, we see these adaptations that are they're the kind of things that if you were to ask kids in a classroom, you know, how do aliens survive? That's the kind of things we're seeing, right? We're seeing microbes that can breathe metals, breathe in quotes, you know. Um, we're seeing microbes that can survive by sharing electrons with each other. So there, there's, there's these adaptations that they're kind of fanciful and they're kind of off the wall, but they're happening in, in these environments that we study all the time. We may never learn if we have neighbors in the universe. This is a story that's still being written. I guess, I guess that is the ultimate question. Is there even an answer to any of this? <sighs> yes. There are many answers, none of which are going to be satisfying. Uh, I hope that answer itself was not satisfying. And I'm now depressed. All right. <laughs> Welcome to philosophy. Yeah. The existential <laughs> angst comes for free. <laughs> Okay, we're going to leave the existential crisis there. Okay, speak for yourself. Either way, I hope you'll join us for the next episode of Science Distilled, where we're exploring neuroscience to begin to understand the powers and limits of perception in humans and dogs. I can't wait. You can listen to past episodes and learn more about Science Distilled, the podcast and the lecture series at KUNR.org. Special thanks to the Terry Lee Wells Nevada Discovery Museum and the Desert Research Institute. This show was produced and edited by the team at KUNR Public Radio. If you have any comments or questions, let us know. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, I'm Michelle Matus. And I'm Paul Boger. That sounds tubular? Oh, it's, so, it's so bad. Oh. You're a welcome world. I think you needed that. <laughs>